All right. So uh, before we begin, I just want to uh, throw out a quick note to those here and to those watching. As uh, you probably are aware, two weeks from now is Easter Sunday, okay? So here's what I want you to do. I want you to begin right now to pray about who you can be inviting to church on Easter Sunday. Easter is in the calendar year, one of two days, Easter and Christmas, the most common day for people to come to church that don't normally come to church. Easter is a time that it's incredibly likely, compared to every other Sunday of the year, that if you invite someone to come, they will probably come. So, uh, we're going to be doing some social media things, we're going to be handing out some stuff, but by far the most effective way to get somebody to come to church is a personal invitation. Upwards of 90 plus percent of people who come to a church for the very first time come as a result of someone they know inviting them to, to be there. And so, uh, I want you to start praying right now. Okay, who is it in my circle, in my oikos, that I can begin to say, hey, Easter Sunday's in a couple of weeks, why don't you come with me? I would love for you to sit with my family um, on Easter Sunday. Throw in there the fact that we meet at 5.30 in the evening, that Jesus rose early in the morning, but that doesn't mean that you have to. Okay, we don't do the sunrise service because Jesus rose and he was still alive by the afternoon. So we celebrate in the afternoon while other churches celebrate in the morning. All right? Throw that in there and people will be like, I can sleep in? Yes, you can sleep in even though Jesus didn't. There you go. There's your, your pitch for Easter Sunday. Uh, so next week, I'm going to be handing out some, uh, some invitation cards for you to be giving to these people. But right now, I want you to start thinking about who those people might be, okay? So two weeks, Easter Sunday. So last week was going to be the end of the Uproot series. Um, I had the series planned out, and and last week was going to be the end. Uh, But like I said to you last week, uh, my beautiful and wise wife, who is wiser than I and far more beautiful than I as well, Um, guided me to many of the principles that we'll be talking about uh, this evening. And so uh, I thought about uh, these passages as she was uh, talking to me about them, and and she said, you know what, I've I've written your sermon for you. Uh, So all credit for tonight's sermon goes to her. All of these words are basically hers. Um, So if something impacts you tonight, go up to her and tell her as much, all right? Um, We've been talking in this series a lot about repentance, about uprooting sin, and and talking about repentance is incredibly important, but we haven't maybe talked enough about the practicalities of repentance. What does repentance actually look like? How does one actually repent? And what's the difference between repentance and behavior modification? And what does it look like when a person acts like they're repentant, but aren't actually repentant? Today, one of the things that I hope to show you is that our affections, what we love, our our affections, our willingness to be exposed and vulnerable, and our commitment to a true change of heart play vital roles in walking in true repentance. In August of 1973, 
Jan Eric Olsen folded a jacket over a submachine gun and walked into the Sveriges Credit Banken in Stockholm, Sweden. I don't speak Swedish. That was my best attempt, okay? Uh, it's a bank, for those who uh, are wondering. This escaped convict pulled out the submachine gun, fired into the ceiling, and shouted in his very best American accent, the party has just begun. In the ensuing chaos, Olsen uh, wounded a policeman and then took four people hostage, three women and one man. Olsen's previous uh, prison sentence, not surprisingly, had been for safe cracking and grand larceny. So this was very on brand for Jan Olsen. Before long, Olsen issued his demands to the police. He demanded nearly a million dollars in mixed currency. He demanded a getaway car. And he demanded that the police release to him another prisoner who was currently in jail. Clark Olofsson. Okay, so now we've got Olsen and Olofsson. It's like Jansen and Johnson. So as confusing as that is, let's, let's just go by their first names for the rest of the time. Jan and Clark. Okay, Jan demanded that Clark be released from prison and brought to him. Clark, by the way, had been in prison for seven years uh, for armed robbery and accessory to murder of a police officer. So this was also very on brand for Clark. Now, I'm not sure what the strategy was uh, from the authorities, but within hours, they gave Jan exactly what he asked for. And not surprisingly, that move was questioned by many at the time. The authorities brought Clark to the bank with money, and a blue Ford Mustang with a full tank of gas. There was only one demand that Jan made that the authorities would not agree to. And that was that Jan and Clark wanted to take the hostages with them on their escape to ensure their safe passage. What followed made immediate headlines and then made history. This was the first criminal event to be covered live on Swedish television. And and again, this was 1973. So this is a worldwide story before long. Jan and Clark took these hostages into the main vault and locked themselves in. And so before long, this bank is surrounded by police, by media, and by many, many onlookers. Snipers are posted on the surrounding rooftops. It's like something out of a movie. And what followed turned out to be a standoff between Jan and Clark and the police that lasted for five consecutive days. Now put yourself in the shoes of these hostages for a moment. What must they have been feeling? What must have they been experiencing as they're, they're going through this traumatic ordeal? What, what kind of fears, what kind of terrors, what kind of horrors are these four people going through? And how would this event affect them afterward? Well, as it turns out, not as anyone would have expected. During the standoff, these four hostages actually bonded with their captors. 
And there are some notable moments during this, uh, this five days that, that fueled this bond. For example, one of the hostages was a woman named Kristen Enmark. And at one point, Kristen was shivering. And so one of the captors brought a wool jacket and draped it around her shoulders. At another point, Kristen woke up from having a bad dream, probably hoping that she would wake up from the bad dream that she was actually living. But she woke up from a bad dream, and one of the captors came over, sat with her, and soothed her after she woke up. He pulled a bullet out of his gun and gave it to her as a keepsake. It's a weird thing to give, but in the moment, it worked. He, uh, he then allowed, at various points, for the hostages to call their families on the phone just to check in. And one of the other female captives, a, a woman named Brigitte Lundblad, was having trouble reaching her family. They weren't answering when, when she would call. And so Jan encouraged her, keep trying, don't give up, keep, keep trying, keep calling. A third female, Elizabeth Oldgren, at one point complained that she was feeling claustrophobic. And so Jan told her that she could have a break from the vault. And so he tied a leash to a 30-foot rope and allowed her to take a walk outside the vault. These acts of benevolence, along with many hours of conversation there in the vault, led to a strange result. The captives were on first-name basis with the captors, and then even began to take their side. Oldgren, for example, said later in an interview, I remember thinking that he was very kind to let me leave the vault. The one uh, male hostage, a guy named Sven Safstrom, was quoted in The New Yorker as saying, When he, Jan, when Jan treated us well, we began to think of him as an emergency god. By just the second day of this standoff, the four hostages had taken their captor's side. Their fear was directed, very ironically, toward the police who were trying actively to rescue them. The police at one point negotiated with Jan and Clark to allow the commissioner to come into the vault to briefly talk to the hostages to make sure that they were okay. And much to his surprise, the hostages were hostile towards him and very relaxed toward their abductors. So much so that the commissioner surmised that they would not be harmed because of their, quote, rather relaxed relationship. That was just on day two. To add further surprise to this, the hostages spoke on the phone with the Swedish Prime Minister, Olaf Palm. And they advocated for Jan and Clark. They even pleaded with the Prime Minister to allow them to leave in the getaway car. If you remember, that was one of the demands that uh, Jan and Clark made that the cops wouldn't give in to. They pleaded with the Prime Minister to allow them to leave in the getaway car. Kristen Enmark told Palm on the phone, I fully trust Clark and Jan. I'm not desperate. They haven't done a thing to us. On the contrary, they've been very nice. <laughs> what? But you know, Olaf, what I'm scared of is that the police will attack us. 
and cause us to die. Mind-bending, right? These people were being held at gunpoint as hostages with their very lives literally on the line and they were advocating against their own rescue. Even in moments when they were directly being threatened by their captors. Sven Safstrom later recounted a moment where Jan threatened the police, saying that if they didn't comply, he would shoot Sven in the leg. I'm going to shoot him in the leg. Sven later said, How kind I thought he was for saying it was just my leg he would shoot. (laughs) In Kristen's recounting of this moment, she said that Sven was initially resistant to being shot, because who wouldn't be, right? And that she said to him, but Sven, it's just in the leg. (laughs) It's just in the leg. Go ahead and let them do it. It's only a flesh wound. (laughs) Finally, after more than 130 hours of back and forth, the police breached the vault and threw in tear gas. But much to their shock and surprise, even as Jan and Clark surrendered, the four hostages tried to protect them. The four would not come out when the policemen said, come on out, you're free, and the four of them wouldn't come. Kristen Enmark famously shouted to the police, Jan and Clark will come out first. You'll gun them down if we come out first. So strange was this dynamic between prisoner and captor that the ensuing investigation sought to determine if the hostages were actually in on it. The police ultimately decided they they weren't, but they had to at least ask the question, did these people help plan this? Because it was so strange to see how this uh, transpired. Ultimately, from this situation, a new term was coined in psychology. That term is Stockholm Syndrome. You've probably heard that term thrown around, Stockholm Syndrome, and this is the story from whence it came. This strange phenomenon occurs when hostages become emotionally indebted to their captors for being kept alive and unharmed. And in this situation, all four captors, All four hostages, captives, were alive and unharmed. And so this term, Stockholm Syndrome, would later be applied to many other similar situations. And this day, it's still used to describe situations, for example, like when battered wives are uh, defending their abusive husbands. Or kidnap and abuse victims who fall in love with they're kidnappers. There's one a study that, uh, that I saw that said 8% of people who are abducted end up falling in love with their abductors. And this is Stockholm Syndrome. And one of the chief characteristics of Stockholm Syndrome is that the captive begins to see the good guys as the real enemies. The captives actually fight to stay enslaved. I would submit to you that this is a perfect illustration 
of our relationship to habitual sin and to addiction. We know and understand, especially if we're believers in Jesus Christ, if if we're familiar with the Bible, we know and understand that sin is bad. And we might even understand that we are enslaved to a particular sin. We may acknowledge and understand that there is a particular sin that we can't get rid of, that has been following us around our entire lives and, and we feel chained to it. But even though we understand that fact in our minds, we still fight to stay enslaved to it because we have an affection for it. We have fallen in love with our captor. It feels to us like an old friend. Because in every moment where we've needed a catharsis, where we've needed something to help us feel better, where we've needed something to give us a shot in the arm, where we've needed an escape uh, out of reality, it's always been there for us. And now we fight to stay enslaved to a sin that is Ultimately, not for our good, but for our destruction. A sin that means only to use us. In order to break free from sin, we have to experience a change in affection. We've talked a lot about repentance in this series. Tonight, I want to talk about a few ways to tell you how to do it. We're going to look at a couple of stories of people being led by God out of slavery, out of death. And these people are not going to serve as an example for us to follow, okay? They are an anti-example. They will serve as examples of what it looks like to be unrepentant. They will serve as examples of what it looks like in Scripture to see Stockholm Syndrome. And we're going to talk about how to not be like these people. So, turning your Bibles to the book of Exodus. We'll be starting in chapter 13, and we'll look at verses 17 through 22. Um, if you are new to the Bible, Exodus is the very second book, so um, it is not that many pages in. The words will be behind me on the screen. And we start in... Verse 17. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved from Sukkoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. 
So let's give a brief overview of what's going on in this story. Uh, Some context here. At this point, the people of Israel have been enslaved in the land of Egypt for over 400 years. They have been literal bond slaves of the Egyptian people. And so after hearing their outcry, God sets them free. In the previous chapters here in the book of Exodus, we see the amazing things that God does to bring them to a place of freedom. He performs these powerful miracles called plagues where he afflicts the Egyptians with 10 different terrible afflictions and ultimately convinces the Pharaoh to let his people go. Pharaoh is very resistant, but God showing off his power over and over and over amazingly sets the people free from slavery. Through the the leader Moses, God promises uh, his people that he's not just leading them out of slavery, he is going to lead them in to a promised land. A land, he says, that is flowing with milk and honey. And that that land is going to be their inheritance forever. So he's not just leading them out of the bad. He's also leading them into the good. And as we read here, he leads them day and night by fire and smoke. It it is a literal and powerful manifestation of the presence of God leading his people. After this, he performs even more miracles to make sure that they remain free. Like, for example, in Exodus chapter 14, in the very next column, we see him uh, parting the Red Sea. Literally, the Red Sea opens up and the people walk across. And when the Egyptian army tries to chase them, God uh, then throws the water of the Red Sea back on them. All to ensure their freedom from slavery. And how do the people respond to this? They respond with complaining, grumbling, moaning and whining and crying out in the desert because they're hungry. They respond with idolatry, literally and figuratively. They respond with a lack of faith. And so as a result, the people end up wandering around in the desert for 40 years in a trip that should have taken them 11 days. I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but the trip from Egypt to the promised land should have been over in less than two weeks. It's an 11-day walk. But instead, because of their disobedience, because of their lack of faith, God curses them and they wander around in the desert for 40 years. And ultimately, many of them never see the promised land at all. They die in the desert. Because even though they left the place of slavery, slavery never left their hearts. They remained enslaved no matter where they went. My friends, this is a picture of how we often relate with sin. God offers to take us out of Egypt. God does miracles to set us free. God leads us out with his powerful presence. And he promises that he's going to lead us into the good. He's going to lead us into the promised land. But we end up wandering around in a desert And as we wander around, we long for our chains and we end up never being truly free because we have Stockholm 
syndrome. I couldn't resist, all right? I, I, I couldn't. It was too easy. So if you're taking notes, here's point number one. Stockholm syndrome causes us to view our bondage through benevolent lenses, which keeps us fighting for it rather than against it. Stockholm syndrome causes us to view our bondage through benevolent lenses, which keeps us fighting for it rather than against it. Going back to the story of Stockholm, remember in this story, the hostages fought for their captors when the police raided the bank. The police breach the building, they throw in tear gas, they call for the hostages to come out, and the hostages are like, no, no, let Jan and Clark go first. And then right after that, even, even as, the, as the police get in, what they find is that the robbers and the hostages hugged one another. They, they embraced, they, they shook hands, they, they even kissed And as police seized the robbers, two of the female hostages cried out, Don't hurt them. They didn't harm us. They shouted out to to Clark, Clark, we'll see you again. And sure enough, the hostages visited their captors in prison on numerous occasions. None of them were willing to testify against their captors. In fact, they even started a drive to raise money for their captor's defense. It was the ultimate example of slaves fighting for their slave masters. As long as we have affection for our captors, we will never be free of them. We will never be fighting them off. Instead, we will be trying however we possibly can to fit them into our lives. This is how the Israelites functioned in the book of Exodus. In this passage that we read, God leads them with fire. He he never left them. He's always there. He made no mystery about it. It was obvious. It was clear. I am here. I am with you. I am leading you here. I'm leading you safely away from your captor. They didn't have to wonder about whether God had left them. No, God was the one who by literal fire was leading them forward. And then they complained They complained because the first place that they end up after God takes them out of Egypt is the desert. And what they begin to do is they start to rewrite history, saying how much better it was in Egypt, even though they were in slavery. Um, There's a passage uh, that talks about this in the book of Numbers. Numbers chapter 11, verses 4 through 6 says this, Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving. Boy, is that true of us. (laughs) And the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish that were in Egypt that we ate that cost us nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. 
But now our strength is dried up, and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. Do you hear how these people are describing this? They're describing their time in Egypt like they were at an all-you-can-eat buffet that they didn't have to pay for. It said, they said, remember the fish that we ate in Egypt that cost us nothing? What do you mean cost you nothing? You were in slavery, in literal chains, with people beating you and forcing you to make bricks. Cost you nothing is the worst possible description of this. Oh, do you remember the, do you remember the fish? Gosh, there, there were cucumbers. There, there were melons. There, there were leeks. I don't know what a leek is. I have no idea what a leek is. To me, that's something that happens to your plumbing. But, but to them, it was like, oh, man, you remember the leeks? Man, the leeks were so good. The onions, the garlic. You guys remember the garlic? Man, we had so much garlic. But now our strength is dried up and there's nothing at all but this manna that we have to look at. When we look at our sin, when God has has done a work in our lives, when when he's brought us into a place where he says, I'm going to set you free from this. I'm going to help you walk out of this because God doesn't want us to stay enslaved. God is, is constantly at work trying to lead us to freedom. And so he tries to give us perspective to say, you were in slavery to this, but I'm trying to set you free. But we, we rewrite history. We, we, we have such affection for it that we look back with these revisionist glasses and, and, and we begin to see our sin as something that cost us nothing. We, we begin to rewrite history and, and we begin to remember it like it was actually freedom. Gosh, we could do whatever we wanted. There were no rules. There were no restrictions. Now look at what God wants to do. God wants to tell me what I can and can't do. God wants to restrict me. God God wants to take me out of a a place that cost me nothing, where where I could just be a free person with, with no authority, no rules, and no guilt. And now I've got all this guilt on me because God's just telling me what to do. And all he's giving me is this desert to walk around in. Uh, no, (laughs) you were actually in slavery. There were chains that bound you. There, There was a slave master that wanted to beat you to death. You were not in control. Your sin was in control. And so when God alerts us to our sin, when God opens our eyes, when when we see that we're walking in sin and he says, I want to lead you into freedom, all of a sudden this battle against sin starts to seem like it's so much harder. We, We get to this place where we're like, man, now I'm fighting against this sin. I don't even really want to fight against it necessarily. And it feels so much more difficult than it ever has before. Why is that? Because in in the past, you weren't battling, you were bound. There was no battle against sin. You You were bound to it. And the only reason it feels harder now is because there's actually a fight. Because God is leading you to a place where he's saying, I want to set you free from this. I want you to fight to stay free. I want to lead you in this. But as long as our affections remain with our captors, we will never be free. It feels hard to repent from sin. 
Because when you become aware of the battle, and if you're consciously fighting it, then it's a war where it seemed before like it was freedom. But if we think about the past, we weren't in a battle at that point. We were bound. And if you're fighting it now, actually fighting it now, instead of being blindly bound, it's because of our affections. Because we have been in love with our sin. And as long as our affection remains, we will not fight for, we will not fight against it. We will only fight for it. We will fight to keep it in our lives somehow. And we're gonna talk in, in just a bit about behavior modification. But right now I just wanna establish that, that when our affection is in the wrong place, we're gonna fight to stay enslaved. No matter what kind of truth you hear, no matter how God leads you with fire, no matter how obvious he makes it to you, no matter what miracles he performs, when your affection is for sin, you will stay bound no matter what. But here's the thing about God. Even as we do that, God continues to show us love. God continues to show us grace. God never gives up on us because what God is always trying to do is lead us to repentance with his kindness. It is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. And we talked about that before in the series. God is not waiting for us with a hammer fist. God is not waiting to strike us down. God is waiting with open arms, welcoming us, beckoning us with his kindness and his grace into freedom. Because ultimately what he is trying to do with that kindness is turn our affection He's trying to turn our affection. He's trying to beckon us with his heart. This is point number two. God doesn't just lead you. He'll also feed you. God doesn't just lead you. He'll also feed you. Look now at Exodus chapter 16. Exodus chapter 16, entitled, Bread from Heaven. They set out from Elam and all the congregation of the people came to the wilderness of sin. Not literal sin. It just happens to be that way in the Hebrew, which I think is awesome. And the people of Israel came to the wilderness of sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the fifth day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Oh, that we would have died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Again, with the revisionist history. Sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. Oh, you must have forgotten about the chains. Okay, moving on. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them, whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. 
For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, and, the, and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling, that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but the Lord. So Moses says to the people, Oh, you you're talking about bread? You talking about meat? Just wait. God's got something for you. And Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp. And in the morning, dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather it, each one of you, as much as you can eat. You shall each take an omer according to the number of the persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less. When they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever had gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And Moses said to them, Let no one leave any of it over till the morning. (laughs) Surprise, surprise, they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning they gathered it, each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. On the sixth day they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, This is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a solemn day of rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil. And all that is left over lay aside to keep till the morning. So they laid it aside till the morning as Moses commanded them, and it did not stink. And there were no worms in it. Moses said, eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will, find, you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will, re- will you refuse to keep my commandments and laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. Now the house of Israel called its name manna. It was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer of it be kept throughout your generations so that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness. When I brought you out of the land of Egypt, And Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer of manna in it and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. The people of Israel ate the manna for 40 years till they came to a habitable land. They ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. When my dad used to preach this passage, he would say, Look at how the manna is described. Coriander, the taste uh, was like wafers made with honey. 
coriander and, and, and honey. And he's like, this is God raining down Twinkies from heaven. The man loved junk food more than anyone I've ever met. And, and one of his favorite thing was Twinkies. And so this was his passage where he says, God rains down Twinkies from the sky. And he's like, all you can eat Twinkies, Israel, for 40 years. God addresses the very thing that they're grumbling over. The very thing that they grumble and they say, we used to eat meat and we used to eat bread. And God says, I'm going to give you meat. He answers that in, in verse 13 with quail. And I'm going to give you bread. And his answer to that is manna. He is going to make sure that they can hold nothing against him. He is going to meet their need, not just adequately, but abundantly. And he's doing this not only to fill their stomach, not just because they need to eat. He's not just filling their stomach with food. He's also doing this to fill their hearts with faith and hope. He's trying to say to them, trust me, trust me. I am going to take care of you every single day. I'm giving you good things. I'm leading you to the good. Don't give up. Don't turn back. I love you. Because see, here's the thing. God doesn't just lead us out of the slavery of our sin. He feeds us in what feels like a desert right after. It, it is hard, hard allowing God to do a transformative work in our lives. It's not easy. As a matter of fact, it doesn't get immediately easier after you repent. It gets harder. It gets harder. Because now you're depriving the flesh. If you're repentant, you're now depriving the flesh of what you have fed on for so long. Meat and bread. You are sitting by the meat pots, eating to your full. At least that's how you remember it. But now that you're depriving the flesh, it feels like you're hungry all the time. Hungry for what you have been feeding yourself in secret. But God doesn't condemn you for having hunger. He loves you by filling your hunger with Twinkies from heaven. He says, I see you where you are and I'm gonna meet your need abundantly. I'm gonna make sure that you're taken care of. I'm gonna give you delicious food to eat. Delicious food to eat. Because not only is this food for them in the moment, manna is a morsel of the promised land. It's a reminder of, of, of what is to come. Remember, the promised land is a land that's flowing with milk and honey. I'm taking you to a place of meat, uh, uh, of milk and honey. And so in the meantime, I'm going to give you honey. I'm going to give you just a little bit of honey on the way. Because when you have a little bit of honey on the way, it's going to keep you going until I get you to where I'm trying to get you into the promised land. But the way that he provides for us is daily bread. The, the, the way that he commanded the Israelites to do this in this passage was you go out and you gather enough for today. Don't try to stockpile it. 
Don't try to gather uh, for the whole week, okay? Because if you do, anything that you have left over is gonna go bad. And, And here it says that it stank and there were worms. They weren't obedient. They said, I'm I'm just gonna get for myself. I'm gonna go out and I'm just gonna grab everything that I want. And God says, that's not how it works. That's the same attitude that you had before when you were in slavery to sin. Just get, 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 get. No, I want you to trust me that you will gather only enough for today. Trust me that I'm gonna take care of you tomorrow. Because here's the thing. Think about this. When, When you're in prison, in jail, you have a guaranteed three meals a day. It's guaranteed. If you go to jail, you're gonna get fed three times a day. I don't know what you're gonna get fed, but you will get fed three times a day. I'll never forget when I was in college, I found out that the catering company that did our dining hall food was the same catering company that took care of the jails in town. And I was like, it's prison food. No wonder it's terrible. (laughs) But you're guaranteed three meals a day if you go to prison. When you're not in prison, when you are free, there's a certain element of faith about whether or not you are gonna have your next meal. Your next meal is not guaranteed, right? You have to do something in order to guarantee your next meal. And it might not come. But if you're in jail, it will. Here, God gave enough manna for one day at a time. They could not stockpile it. But he promised to them that he would give them plenty each morning. But they had to have faith that he was going to take care of them tomorrow. And part of their complaint about going back to Egypt was from a lack of faith. They would rather be in prison and know for sure that they're going to be fed than to be free and rely on God for each day. Isn't that how it is with our sin? We would rather be in prison to make sure that we're going to get fed something than to trust God every single day to rely on him for the next meal. The truth is, what you were feeding on in Egypt was never gonna satisfy you because you were never gonna be free. You were a slave for your food. You get your three squares a day, but you're never free to enjoy it. And God is leading them into the good, leading them into the promised land. But are you talking about leeks and onions when God is promising a a land that's flowing with milk and honey? If they just had enough faith to get them through that dry difficulty, he was going to bring them in to the good. He is trying to turn their affection But because they lacked faith and didn't rely on the promises of God, the the desert took a lot longer than it should have. My friends, I I, want to implore you to understand that that God is going to take care of you every day. God is going to feed you 
good things. He's not asking you to walk into a place that that your needs will not be met, that your desires will not be fulfilled, that you will not be satisfied because what Satan tries to promise you is God is holding out. You need to make sure you get yours. Stockpile, consume, gather it, hide it in your tent because if you don't, you won't be fed. The promise of God is I will take care of you every day. Trust me. Just trust me. I'm gonna take care of you every day. Trust me. If you don't, you're gonna be a slave. I'm trying to set you free. Trust me. Just trust me. You can turn your affection to me because I'm a good father that's gonna meet your every need. God will not only lead you, he will also abundantly feed you. Bread from heaven. Now, now that we've looked at the story of the Israelites in the desert, I want to briefly give us another picture of what this same sort of attitude looks like in an individual being set free. Because I really want us to zero in on this truth that our affections matter, okay? We can't just change our outward behavior. We have to allow God to turn our hearts. So turn now to Genesis 19. In Genesis chapter 19, we find uh, we're in the middle of a story about Sodom and Gomorrah, two famous cities that were famous for their sin. And God is now handing down judgment. And part of what he's going to do in this story is he's going to rescue out of Sodom and Gomorrah this man named Lot. And Lot's family is going to come with him. Lot is the nephew of Abraham. And so Abraham has been praying and praying and praying on Lot's behalf. And so God, in chapter 19, before he destroys Sodom and Gomorrah, offers freedom and hope to Lot and his family. He takes two angels, right? Two angels go into the city. Two angels are are talking to Lot and his family and are beckoning them to come out. Genesis chapter 9, I'm sorry, 19, beginning in verse 15. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. I just want to interject here. that This is often how it looks when God is trying to free us from our sin. He warns us and he says, come on, get out, go up. This is for your destruction, leave. Verse 16, but he lingered. Isn't that what we do? We, we linger. We hang around. We're like, oh, I don't know. It's pretty comfortable here. I built up quite a life. This is my house. I've got a job. I really enjoy this. I don't know. God's saying this is bad that I got to go, but. Uh. But the Lord took him by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him, and brought him out, set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. 
And Lot said to them, Oh no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest the, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and, and it's a little one. Let me escape there. I, is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. Lot's attitude is like, ah, I'll escape, but I, I, I don't want to go too far. Like, uh, how about I just go over there? Because it's kind of close, and, and it's just a little city. Can, can I do that instead? He said to him, behold, I grant you this favor also. Patience, man. That is God showing tremendous patience. I grant you this favor also that I will not overthrow the city which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore, the name of that city was called Zoar. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back. And she became a pillar of salt. That's point number three. Stockholm Syndrome will allow you to change your behavior, but it won't allow you to change your heart. You can change your behavior, but not your heart. We find here in, in this one verse, Lot's wife. She's mentioned earlier, but her action her one-line biography in the Bible is here in verse 26, and it is a sad story of a life that is lost because she looked back. Even though God was setting her free from judgment, God was taking her and showing mercy, God was being abundantly good and abundantly patient and, and, and bringing the whole family out in, in freedom, and in spite of that, even as she ran out of the city with Lot and their daughters, her heart was still in Sodom. This, this, wasn't, this wasn't an action of judgment simply because of a glance backward, okay? This wasn't like, oh, I'm running, I gotta make sure that nothing gets me. That, that's not what happened. What's happening here is that her heart is still back home. Her heart is still in Sodom. She longed to be there instead. She didn't leave because she wanted to. She left because her husband convinced her. And barely even that. She left because these two angels convinced her. Because these two angels grabbed them by the hand and they're like, Go now or you're going to die. But even as she ran out, her heart never left. Even as she changed outwardly, she never left inwardly. She remained squarely in Sodom, and so she was judged with Sodom. As we, as we think about our sin in this way, we, we have to realize that to truly leave sin behind in the past, 
to truly leave it behind, we have to pray that God would put in us a resolve to leave and not look back. If your heart is still with your sin, if your affection is still there, you will always turn back. That's a fact. Take it from somebody who knows what it's like to live in habitual sin. If your heart is still with your sin, you will always turn back. If your longing for sin is stronger than your longing for freedom, your obedience will only ever be from obligation and it will never be permanent. You will always fall. You will always return. This is behavior modification. She modifies her behavior. She follows the directions of the angels and of her husband, and she leaves. Physically, outwardly, she's doing the right thing. Outwardly, she's going in the right direction. Outwardly, she's walking on the right path. But inwardly, her heart is still in bondage. This is often what we do with sin. We're willing to do stuff outwardly. We're willing to make some changes out here. We're willing to do things that make us look good to the people around us. We're willing to confess to little pieces of it. We're willing to expose certain aspects of our sin. But inwardly, we're still tied. Inwardly, we're still in bondage. And, and we'll do things like, well, maybe I'll put a, a filter on my phone. Maybe I'll install some software and maybe that will be a work of freedom. I'm not trying to denigrate a tool like an accountability software. That's a good tool. A filter is a good tool, but it's a terrible savior, okay? It will fail because it's not going to change your heart. And if your heart is still bound, a filter is not going to set it free, It's good to use these things as an aid. It's not good to use them as an answer. Because here's the thing about behavior modification. Behavior modification usually goes both ways. You don't just modify one behavior. There's a a behavior that uh, that you modify for the good, but there's equal amounts of behavior that you modify for the bad. Here's what I mean. You, You may modify something to be better, But your sin just finds a different avenue to stay alive and act. You may stop looking at porn, but you still give your imagination permission and freedom to live in fantasy land. One modification is good, but the other is just as bad in the other direction. And all you've done is a sin trade. We talked about sin trades before. Satan always is willing to do a sin trade. If you give him one and he gives you another, he doesn't care. Because you're still in bondage. You're still not free. In order to truly repent of sin, in order to truly be free, we have to pray that God will change our hearts. And maybe right now you're in a place where you're like, I'm not ready. Thank you for admitting that. Pray that God would make you ready. Pray that he would make you ready. Pray that he would turn your affection, that that he would give you eyes to see the truth of Sodom, that it's not a place of comfort, it's a place of destruction. And what God offers is infinitely better, immediately better. It might feel like a desert at first. It might feel like you're running towards the hills to escape sulfur at first. But where he's leading you to is infinitely better if you will just trust him. I need you to know something from the bottom of my heart. 
there is hope. There is hope. I was having a conversation with my wife um, recently, and she said, what would you say to your former self? How, how would you try to convince that dude to change? And one of the things that I said was, I, I would say to that dude, there is hope. There absolutely is hope. Here's point number four. Gospel hope is ready to bring you into the promised land. Gospel hope is ready to bring you into the promised land. We're going to go back now to the story of the Israelites. Okay, so the Israelites have been wandering in the desert, and then they get to this place where they're scoping out the land, right? So in Numbers 14, in Numbers 13, spies are sent into Canaan, right? God sends these 12 guys out there and he says, go and scope out the promised land and then bring a good report back to the people. So the spies go out, they scope the land and they come back. And what they tell the people is a bad report. The report of the spies at the end of chapter 13 is that there is no hope for us. We went, we peeped the promised land and all we found there is giants that make us look like grasshoppers. Verse 27 of chapter 13, they told him, we came to the land to which you sent us and it does flow with milk and honey and it does have big old fruit, but the people who dwell in the land are strong and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negeb, the Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites, all the parasites in the hill country and the Canaanites dwell by the sea along the Jordan. We can't do it. Sorry. We've checked out the promised land. We've, offered, we've looked at what God has offered. And it's good. But not for us. Maybe if we were big people. Maybe if we were strong people. Maybe if we were different, powerful people. But those different, powerful people live there. So uh, let's go back. Let's turn around. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Then the men who'd gone up with him said, we're not able to go against the people. They're stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they'd spied out, saying, the land through which we've gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim. And, and we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers. And so we seemed to them. Here in chapter 14. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to him, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt. Hadn't they said this before? Whether we died in the land of Egypt or whether we died in the wilderness, why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let's choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces and all the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel. And Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes, and said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, This land which we pass through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. 
If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord. And do not fear the people of the land, for they are bred for us. Their protection is removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Then all the congregation said to stone them with stones. But the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. Caleb and Joshua. Caleb and Joshua are the only spies to show faith in the ability of the Lord to give them the good that he had promised. All these others said, it's too hard. There's no hope. It's so much easier if we just give up and continue to be slaves. At least we'll still be alive. What God is, it, what God is offering us to, it, it's too difficult. What God is asking us to do, we'll never be able to do it. The enemies are too powerful. They're too strong. We're never gonna be able to overcome. And Caleb says, do not fear. Do not rebel. The good has been promised and the obstacles, look at what he said. I love what he says here. He says, do not fear the people of the land. They are bread for us. Here this bread motif comes up again. The Israelites complained that when they were in Egypt, they got bread and meat. And so what does God give them in the desert? He gives them bread. And so now they come to the edge of the promised land and they're afraid of all the enemies. And Caleb goes, the enemies are bread. This is ancient trash talk. He's saying, we're gonna eat them up. They are bread. You guys want bread? I'm gonna give you some bread. These guys over here are bread. Let's eat them up. Let's go into the good. Gospel hope is ready to bring us into the promised land. Just don't rebel. Don't turn back. Don't be afraid. This is what true repentance looks like. A desire to be free from sin that's stronger than our desire for that sin. And only God can produce that in us. We have to pray for it. True repentance requires true vulnerability, true accountability. It requires honest confession. And that's costly. Yes, there are obstacles. Yes, there are some tall dudes in the way. When we try to go into the promised land, it's not like it's just going to be easy. Going into the promised land is going to require difficult things. Difficult things like vulnerability and exposure. Bringing our hearts out into the light fully and completely. Because anything that remains in darkness will live. Any sin that stays in the dark stays alive. And here's the thing that we have to understand. It's going to come out one way or another. That's a guarantee. Whatever is hidden in our hearts will come out, whether we want it to or not. But we have the choice to bring it out to the Lord, and it will go better for us. There's hard things in the promised land, like allowing ourselves to be uncomfortable, allowing ourselves to be embarrassed. There's hard things in the promised land, like confessing to the people that you have wronged. You, you, you can't just try to take care of your sin in the dark away from the people that you've wronged and, and say to yourself, you know what, I'm gonna just, I'm gonna just take this secret to the grave. Nobody needs to know. I'm gonna beat this over here. I, I, I'm gonna take care of this. I'm gonna control it. And then I'm not gonna tell anybody. That's not how it works. 
Anything that is unconfessed will just stay alive and keep you chained to it. And so it's a hard thing to allow yourself to face that. It's a hard thing to go against these, these Anakites in the promised land. And, and we do things to just change our behavior, to modify our behavior. We go, all right, well, well I, I just need to, to pray more. I, I just need to, to read my Bible more. And, and prayer and scripture are good. Those are good things. But only in so much as they are feeding a true affection. People want to skip over the hard stuff and just go to, what do I have to do to check a list? Prayer? Okay, I'll I'll check that. Uh, Bible reading? Read through a study. Whatever it is. But if we skip the steps of doing the hard things, of beating the enemies in the promised land, we're going to remain enslaved. We can't just modify our behavior. We can't just run and hide. We gotta look at the enemy that's facing us in the promised land and go, God brought me here for the good. This is bread. And Satan tries to come against us to say, you will never beat me. We look at him and say, you're bread. <laughs> you're bread. If you're willing to have faith like Caleb and Joshua, you too can be free. I, I used to side-eye people's testimonies. When I would hear about people who'd been transformed and set free, after all of my own efforts to be transformed and set free on my own power, that never worked. And I would hear about people's lives being changed and I would be like, come on. I don't believe that for a second. Because I've tried all that stuff and it's never worked for me. And so I would side-eye these testimonies thinking that it was just exaggerated or made up entirely. But I, I can tell you as I stand here from experience that there is hope. There is gospel hope for freedom because I have experienced it. And I want you to experience it too. Are you ready to finally surrender? to ask God to give you faith to walk out of Egypt, to walk out of Sodom and not look back, to ask God to give you daily Twinkies as you do the hard work of life change in his power, to give you the promised land and to view your enemies as bread. Are you willing to do that? Now is the time to do that. I'm going to pray and Allison's going to play our, our closing song. And during this song, like I, I want you to consider what God has for you. What, what surrender truly looks like. If you have ever given your life to Jesus completely, if, if you've ever laid down the surrender and if you're ready to do that today, I'm going to be standing right there and I want you to come down and say, I'm ready to repent and give my life to Jesus. Or if there's something that you're holding on to that you're like, all right, it's time to lay it down. It's time to lay it down. I want to talk to you for a second. And then I want to walk with you through the process of walking into the good. If you're watching online right now, obviously you can't meet me at the front, but I want you to message me or message somebody else in this church and say, I'm ready. I'm ready to walk out of Egypt. I'm ready to walk into the good. 
Let me pray. God, thank you so much for calling us to repentance and doing so with your kindness. God, thank you that you never give up on us. You never leave us. You, you always and forever show us your grace. God, I pray for every person under the sound of my voice. Lord, that you would show them gospel hope. God, that you would offer them a turn of affection. God, that you would convict, that you would draw people, that you would bring people to your throne room, that you would break chains of bondage, that you would show yourself good. God, I pray especially for any person who has never given their life to Jesus, who has never come to a a place of of, of full surrender. God, I pray that tonight you would call them to do exactly that. God, I pray for any person who has been following after you for any measure of time and yet is still holding on to some besetting sin. God, I pray that you would break the Stockholm Syndrome that you would break the affection for the bondage, that you would turn their hearts, that they, w- they, they would be willing to come to you and say, I'm ready to lay it down. I'm ready to trust you for daily bread. I'm ready to eat manna. God, I pray that you would give us freedom, that we'd celebrate this freedom together. Lead our hearts in that direction. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would stand, we will sing.